today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. This is um, it's a very serious story. I'm sure that most of you, all of you, remember the Yosef Al Haznawi case. Uh, you heard Paul Tipple talking about it in the news just before he came in here. Back in December, a young man is at a convenience store in East Hamilton. There is some sort of involvement between two younger guys and an older gentleman. It gets a little heated. Uh, Yosef Al-Haznawi interjects to try and help the older man, and I guess the story goes to try and get him out of trouble this way. In the midst of all this, he gets shot. Now, here is where things get hazy in this story, because some witnesses have said, some witnesses have said that when the paramedics arrived on the scene, they were very casual and very cavalier and in their response and didn't really take the situation all that seriously by the sounds of it. Uh, Al-Haznawi went on to pass away later that evening. Yesterday, the two paramedics who were involved there, who were the ones who arrived on the scene, they were charged with failing to provide the necessities of life. It's a criminal charge. It's a serious charge. It's a serious story. Mario Pastorano is, uh, Pastoraro, pardon me, is the uh, president of OPSU Local 256 that represents these paramedics. Mario, thanks for doing this today. Thank you very much, Scott. And it's Pastorero. I'm glad pa- you got it almost right. Uh, you know what? By, by the third time, I'll get it, I promise. Uh, I can't remember. I, I've certainly, we certainly know of cases where people have passed away when paramedics have arrived. Th- that happens. But I can't remember ever a case like this where paramedics have been charged. Can you? Well, first and foremost, Scott, let me, uh, you know, on behalf of myself, my colleagues, including the two subject paramedics in our entire service, you know, we continue to express our deep, uh, felt, heartfelt condolences to the family of Yosef Al-Haznawi. Can't imagine, you know, the strife and the grief they continue to go through as this issue continues uh, to move through uh, the process and including the courts. I'll also tell you that this is an unprecedented uh, case, and it's an unprecedented attack, legal attack, against two paramedics who tried to assist this individual in spite of some of the misinformation. Um, They tried to assist, and unfortunately, a negative outcome does not necessarily mean that there is criminal intent, and in this case, does not justify the charges that have been leveled against these two paramedics. Mario, when you refer to it as an attack, I'm wondering, do you believe this was either politically motivated, these charges that they were prompted by people speaking out politically or because of public outcry? Is that what you're referring to? Well, I mean, it's hard to say. Obviously, this is a high-profile case. There's been a certain narrative that has uh, dominated uh, both social media and uh, the news airwaves. There's been a lot of misinformation. Uh, these two paramedics have been characterized as cowboys and as uncaring. These are two very competent, caring, professional paramedics that function at a very high level, that have had positive performance appraisals by our management, that were caught in an unfortunate circumstance that resulted in an unfortunate death. And, you know, I will say um, these charges... Um, it, 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 they're unfortunate, and in spite of them being flawed, 
this now presents a different threshold for paramedics practicing in the province of Ontario. To think you can be charged uh, under the criminal code, section 215, for failing to provide the necessities of life is absolutely despicable and it's disappointing. And we will vigorously challenge these charges that will be before the courts. Mario, you mentioned about the information, the different points of view. I do want to play a very quick clip here. This was from a night or two after this. This was from a guy uh, who was a witness there. This is what he had to say. This guy's name is Tom. Here it is. You could tell he was in pain. Okay. Because they tried lifting him up, and he just kept saying, it hurts, it hurts. And what did they say? Ah, you're faking. What do you say, Mario, about witnesses who come up with those stories or who offer those stories? Because I, I don't believe that the witness was trying to make it up or trying to come up with something that uh, they were trying to give their best view, I think, of, of what happened. What do you say about them? Well, I, I think witnesses have perspectives and look at issues through a specific lens. Um, what's important here is the uh, criminal conviction requires a proof of guilt beyond a reasonable doubt based on all of the objective evidence you know let's let's remember these two paramedics are considered innocent until proven guilty these charges uh, have been leveled against them they will be vigorously challenged and we're confident uh, that these charges will not stick and these paramedics will return back to work Okay, so let, let's go through this. Now, we understand, and, and you're exactly right, people have perspective, and we know that it was late at night, so it was dark, and we don't know exactly how far away the witnesses were and how chaotic the scene was, so all those things absolutely factor into this. We don't have all those answers. If, if that witness was exactly right, if the paramedics, or any paramedics, not these guys, if any paramedics acted as that witness described, as a cavalier not caring, saying they were faking, would that trouble you? You know, Scott, I'm not going to get into, you know, being trapped into providing a certain response. I can tell you this. Paramedics provide optimal patient care in a variety of difficult circumstances. Um, multiple critical decisions have to be made rapidly and simultaneously under very difficult, very tough clinical moments. And bystanders' perspectives, without disrespecting what they are, don't paint the full picture of what transpires during the course of an event. And I I can tell you that I'm not going to get into the details, obviously, because this issue will be litigated in the courts, not through the media. I'm here just to provide a general overview of what these charges represent, not to discuss the specifics of the case, but I am very confident that once all the specifics and all of the objective evidence is weighed, uh, these paramedics will be vindicated and the the charges will not stick. Okay, leaving this one aside, leaving this case aside entirely, what are the legal responsibilities of any paramedic when he or she arrives at a scene? Because okay, there must be outlines of very specific things that they are supposed to and expected to do, regardless of who they are or what the situation is. Scott, all of our paramedics function under the medical authority of a base hospital physician. We undergo, undergo uh, rigorous annual testing. Uh, these paramedics uh, function at a very high and competent level. Obviously, when we arrive at the scene, we assess and we make determinations based on a variety of uh, pieces of information. History is gathered. I can tell you 
there was a variety of information that was provided to these two paramedics. And, of course, um, emotional um, family members or emotional bystanders look at things through a different lens. These paramedics were actively engaged in trying to critically determine the patient's complaints. And they've done so in a, ma- in a manner that is consistent with the standards that we function under. These paramedics have been interviewed by the Ministry of Health, by our employer on multiple occasions, as well as the medical authority. So the evidence is before those regulatory bodies, and again, we're confident that they abided by all of the statutory obligations that are beholden to paramedics in the province of Ontario. This is a a tragic outcome, but it should be put at the hands of the two perpetrators who have been charged with murder, not at the hands of the two paramedics who attempted to assist this individual. Mario, because... When paramedics arrive at a scene, it's, uh, as you say, it's unpredictable at times. You don't know what the, the, there's not always going to be a positive outcome, even if the paramedics get there in time. Because of that, and because there are times when someone might die or when the situation might be very dire, do you get, do you hear a lot of complaints from people just because the outcome is not what they expected health-wise? I mean, absolutely. You know, Scott, given the lack of frontline resources that we have, and it's obviously been a subject of, this radio program for a number of years, our paramedics respond to approximately 80,000 requests for medical assistance on an annual basis. The percentage of positive patient feedback is in the 99th percentile. It's a very high level. Our paramedics are highly qualified. They provide an optimal level of patient care. Do patients die? Yes, they do. Do they die at the hands of paramedics? Very unlikely. Patients die because of a variety of different circumstances, no different than patients dying on an operating table. Scott? The fact that this investigation, because uh, this happened early in December, so we're well over seven months since this happened and t- until these charges are laid. Had you been kept up to date a- a- along the way with anything, or had it been seven months of silence and then you found out about the charges? Well, I I wouldn't say it's absolute science, but, you know, I spoke to the lead detective on April 5th of 2018, and I was dismayed at the lack of progress. Um, And the lead detective representing the Niagara uh, Regional Police Service, which is the police service that was tasked with investigating this incident uh, by the Hamilton Police Force, uh, was still in the process of of interviewing and gathering information. so I, I wouldn't say we've been briefed uh, frequently, um, but, you know, we've understood that there's still information to be gathered, that was to be gathered, and yesterday, obviously, the information was delivered to the two subject paramedics that would, they would be charged under the criminal code. And you, you, can, you can imagine, you know, the enormous stress these paramedics have been under over the last seven or eight months. They've been blamed and shamed within the media. There's been misinformation. The narrative has not been accurate, Scott. And again, it's not my intention to litigate this on this radio program. It's my intention just to bring to your listeners' attention that, you know, we still obviously uh, feel uh, sorrow for Joseph El Hasnawi's family, the grief that they're going through. This is an unfortunate circumstance. Um, This individual uh, died prematurely, was murdered by two perpetrators that are before the courts. To shift the blame on two paramedics is absolutely despicable because the evidence will establish 
that they done what they could do at that point in time, given some of the differential diagnoses and given some of the events that transpired as they transported the patient to the hospital, Scott. Mario, there uh, we only have a minute or two left here, but there has been talk, uh, a lot of talk in recent years about police officers wearing body cameras, vest cameras, or chest cameras, so that, you know what, their behavior and also uh, their behavior can be s- s- uh, looked at, and also the people who have done stuff, it can be used as evidence. Any thought that paramedics should have the same thing to, just to establish, I mean, from your perspective, of how well we did our job, or here's what we did so we can show that we did it right? Our paramedics assume that they're being video recorded every time they're involved in an incident or a call. We don't, we're, we're, we don't need to be cognizant of the fact that if there's video surveillance, we will behave differently. As I said, our performance percentage rating is in the 99th percentile. We respond to over 80,000 calls annually, and we function at a very, very high level with a very high patient satisfaction rating, Scott. So, um, you know, some of these initiatives that, you know, you reference, um, you know, aren't necessary because we're confident of the good job that we continue to do for our patients. And in spite of these unfortunate circumstances where people do die, um, I think the take-home point is these paramedics in this circumstance should not be charged. They have been charged, and we will defend against those charges. Last thing as I let you go, are they working now? Are they suspended? Are they working? Are they on active duty? What is their status? Yeah, I'm not uh, in a position to reveal that. Okay, all right. Uh, Mario uh, Pestorero, really um, the OPSU Local 256 president, really appreciate the time today. Thanks for doing this. Difficult day, I know. Thank you, Scott. It is, uh, it is one of the more unusual, difficult, unsettling stories. And certainly Mario is strongly defending his people. You would expect him to do just that. The witnesses have said what the witnesses are going to say. It is... Uh, but he's right. It is unprecedented. I, I could not find any evidence or any suggestion of another case like this. I couldn't find one looking around of paramedics being charged because of something they did or did not do. Maybe there, maybe somewhere along the way there's been somebody in the medical field. Well, we know there have been. There's been nurses. There's one ongoing right now as far as a trial. But we know there may have been some who have intentionally harmed someone, very rarely. But I can't think of... Another case, I can't find another case where failing to provide the necessities of life for allegedly simply not doing enough. It it is a very, very interesting, very unusual, very rare case. Um, We'll certainly be following this one. Not going anywhere anytime soon. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Earlier this week, if you were listening, we were chatting about telecommuting. People who have decided, you know what, I have had enough of the cubicle, I've had enough of the office, I've had enough of the city. My dream is that I now, with technology, with the internet, with everything else, I can now have the ability to live up at the cottage and work from the cottage. I don't have to be chained to my desk anymore. I can sit on the dock with the Wi-Fi going, with the laptop on me. I can take an hour-long break to go water skiing, maybe throw a line in the water while I'm between work. Instead of a coffee break, I'm going to have a 15-minute fishing break. It, it, it sounds delightful. It sounds fantastic. And when we talked to someone who had just done this, he gave us no indication that this was not as amazing as it sounded. However, 
as we talked about this, and then I went back to my desk afterwards and looked online and started actually looking at cottages, motivated, not really to buy it, more curious. I discovered the slight little fly in the ointment. That being cottage prices are going through the roof. If you think Hamilton house prices are skyrocketing, which they are, you ain't seen nothing. According to a report last week, cottage prices across Canada have gone up a p- average of 13% in the past year alone. 13%. In the Kawartha Lakes area, it, that number is 14.3%. Down in the Niagara-on-the-Lake area, 16.7% for cottages. That is a higher increase than you will get in the Hamilton market. And we know that this is considered a crazy market right now. So... I guess this means, I would think this means that if you don't already own a vacation property, the chances of getting one are maybe now out of your reach. I don't know if they are or not, but certainly it's getting more difficult. It's getting pricier. You're going to have to dig deeper to get one. Joe Fincham is a broker with Perry Sound Muskoka Realty Limited uh, in Magnetowan. He joins us now. Joe, how are you today? Well, not too shabby, but it's actually John. Uh, John, I apologize. I wrote Joe down. I apologize for that, John. Uh, Thanks for being here. Uh, You know, as I go online and I start looking at the real estate market up in your area, and I was up there a couple weeks ago and there was a couple in Bob Cajun and there were a few real estate shops on the street and you stop and you look at the prices. Uh, There are tons of beautiful properties up there, many of them for sale. I don't find too many bargains, though. No, no. If it if it's a decent property, there, there's no bargains to be had. If it looks like there's a bargain, there's a, there's a problem. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but even the yeah. even the handyman specials though are not cheap. You're not you're not finding even a beaten down, falling apart cottage that you would have to wipe out and rebuild again just for the land. If it's on waterfront, you're not finding anything cheap. No, no, because the developers are buying those and they're using the the legal non-conforming footprints and, and, and building something new and then flipping it. So um, if it's on a good lake uh, and it's a decent lot, you know, hold tight. It's going to be scary. John, when did this happen? When did it all of a sudden start to really take off? Because there was a time when cottages were a very middle class or even lower middle class in some cases thing that was affordable. When did it change? Yeah. Well, in a real sense, maybe four or five years ago, the, the market swung quickly. And a lot of it was foreign buyers. Uh, we saw quite mm. a few out-of-country folks um, who wanted cottage. And so that put a new uh, a new spin on things, you know, new people to the market, which pushed prices. And then uh, a great deal of the folks that we sell to are people that want to retire up here. So they use it, you know, for a cottage now. They work at other cottage and eventually want to semi-retire to the cottage and then fully retire to the cottage. So I think it's, uh, you know, demographics are playing a huge role. Yeah, there are, there are many stories you can find online right now that have been written recently that are either crediting or blaming, depending on your point of view, uh, <laughs> the retiring baby boomers for this surge that are saying they Absolutely. are the ones who are really pushing the prices. It, it is, and it's also, there's a big chasm, too, with properties now. So you were citing the increases in the market, and uh, the caveat to put to that are, would be that the uh, the properties with you know gentle slope to the water that have uh, Wi-Fi, they have good internet access, 
you know, on, on big water, they're surging. The ones that, you know, have a thousand stairs down, uh, they're, they're not going up the same because of that, because of the age group of the people that are buying. So, so there's, a, there's a huge spread uh, happening. So no one is putting in, no one elderly is putting in those, ride those chairs up the stairwell <laughs> thing. From... <laughs> they are to a point. It's not, it's not their, their go-to, you know, situation. So it happens, but it's not, not as common as what you might think. The, the thing that's interesting about this, so it, assuming, uh, understanding the situation now, so you've got this glut of baby boomers and others who are buying these, and the market is very tight as a result, and the demand is low, so the, or the supply is low, so demand is high, prices go up. Yeah. But baby boomers are a certain age, and I'm not wishing any ill on any of them, but the reality is we all know how life works. There's going to come a time, whether it's 15, 20, 25, 30 years that they are going to be gone, should we then look at this and say this is a moment in time where buying a cottage is really difficult, but in 20 years there is going to be a glut of cottages that flow back on the market because many of these baby boomers are going to be gone? Yeah, I've I've pondered that scenario actually, but I I don't think it's going to come to fruition because all of the new Canadians coming in, that's a, that's a completely different stream of people purchasing in all different ages. So that's taking up uh, anything that would uh, come like that, I would think. And the other thing you have to keep in mind is when, when they're buying these cottages, they're putting them lots of times in their kids' names too. Like they're looking for family compounds that are going to be handed down, handed down, handed down. And so they go to their accountants some of them do it as a trust. Some of them do it, you know, many different ways. But they, the reason there's not as many for sale is a lot of folks are trying to keep them within the family. So it's really, you know, putting a stranglehold on inventory. You mentioned about how they put them in their kids' names. That's an interesting one because I, I was reading something the other day that second homes or vacation homes are taxable assets. And so if if I die and leave it to my kids in the will... The house, the cottage is valued by somebody. Let's say it's a million dollar cottage. I have to pay capital gains on that, which could be a couple hundred thousand dollars if I want to take that. That becomes <laughs> or a, couple, or a couple million, depending on the cottage. No, but I'm talking about the amount of taxes that I would then have to pay out from that, right. and and so that becomes very difficult for a lot of people. They get stuck in this position now. I either have to sell it, or I have to find two or three hundred thousand dollars in taxes. If you put it in your kid's name ahead of time, I guess that gets around that. Well, I'm, I'm not an accountant, but uh, I know from experience that a lot of people will put it in, in a combination of names. Usually their kids are untitled as well, and uh, perhaps that's why. Even if that wasn't the case, though, even if the person passes away and has left it to their child or children and it's going to cost 200000 in taxes and the child decides that he or she cannot keep it, they're still not going to put it up on the market for dimes on the dollar. They're still going to be asking no. for a big price. Absolutely, without without question. And why would they do anything but that? Because, uh, you know, when, when when the supply is so low, like you said, and the demand is so high, it, uh, it really puts a strain on things. Um, you know, we have, uh, you know, situations where people have, you know, money to spend and they literally can't find they literally can't find the cottages that make sense to them and, it, and they get frustrated because you know eight years ago you know you'd look at you know here's six cottages that meet our criteria we'll pick what's the pick of the litter and now they're waiting for me to call them to say here one just came up on the market you know start your car come and 
and take a look at it. So it's completely shifted the market. Um, if the days on market are long, generally it's either priced crazy or, you know, there's a fatal flaw. You know, there's a, a buried nuclear reactor they're not going to put. There's, you know, there's, there's an issue there. There are three-headed fish being caught just it's outside the front of the cottage. We use that as a clue. You know, if a fish glow, mm, if you can't recognize what it is you brought in, it's probably a bad sign. Has the expectation in real estate? Yeah, exactly. John, has the expectation also of what a cottage is has that changed? It has because uh, of the age group. Once again, you know, when I was young, and I'm actually not that old. I'm only fifty-two. But a cottage was a very basic structure that you went. In. It was one up from from camping. Yeah. You know. You know. But now, none of the plates well, matched. None of the cutlery <laughs> matched. The carpets were stained. They had sand in them. Yeah, I know exactly what you, uh, you mean. You know, and, and oftentimes it was an outhouse. But now, <laughs> you know, it, it's completely different. They're more like uh, rustic homes. Uh, depending on the lake you're on and the price point, it's completely shifted. And uh, it's also putting, people have to keep in mind, it's putting the carrying costs up because now you've got a, an assessment, uh, an average cottage is, you know, it's pretty pricey now. On on, a, on the big lakes, if you can get on for under 800000 you're doing good. Wow. Uh, on the smaller lakes, you know, a, a decent starter cottage is 400 So... You know, and it's going to be ugly in some ways. You know. <laughs> wow. And if people if people are buying, if they can find one of those old rustic Spartan cottages like we used to have in the '60s, '70s, early '80s, even if they can buy those, are they keeping those, or are they generally buying those simply to knock them down and put up a nicer one? A lot of times, what they do is they make it, you know, livable or what they consider livable for a few years, and then. Uh, when they can afford it, then they'll tear it down, you know, rebuild on that footprint and, and go from there. But I, I, I tell people now, if, you, if you're in the market, buy something ugly on a decent lot, you know, that's structurally reasonable. And, and that's the only way that regular folks can get into the market, uh, you know, uh, in my opinion. You know, buy something that that's maybe got paneling from the 70s and that ugly shag carpet or, you know what I mean but it's livable it's usable and the lot is decent you know you can't change that lot so you know that's a good way to crack the market you know use it and then either work on it or eventually tear it down but at least it gets you in well there's one other thing with this too that strikes me and that is once upon a time uh, if you decided you wanted to buy a place and live up there in the winter if you were going to make it your home as opposed to just your cottage um, you were basically going to be going all Walden Pond on everybody. I mean, in the wintertime when the snow came, you're reading books or you're <laughs> snowshoeing and you're a hermit because it's you're not going to get in, you're not going to get out, and you're just going to be sitting there with a f- crackling fire and that's pretty much it. Uh, now with, you know, wireless internet and with solar panels and with every, you know, th- other technologies, it can be, it's very comfortable to live up there now very easily. Absolutely. It's completely changed the game. Uh, yeah, you wouldn't you wouldn't recognize the average cottage if somebody time warped <laughs> from the uh, '80s to now. You wouldn't recognize the the changes. It's it's unbelievable. So, John, what do you do? I'm I'm let's say I'm a 30, 35 year old guy with a young family, and it's always been our dream to own a cottage somewhere. What do I do now? What what or do I just say you know what I find a new goal because this is out of reach? Yeah, well, you have to be realistic. I don't consider cottages, even though the market's going up, a good investment from a money point of view because you've got carrying costs. Um, you know, you have to keep in mind that there's always going to be maintenance, there's always going to be taxes. Uh, you know, so even though the market's going up huge, 
from an actual dollar point of view, don't you know? Don't think of it. That I don't think that's a good mindset. I mean, maybe for your soul, it's a good investment, but maybe not for your pocketbook. So, if you want to get in on the market, a smaller lake, like I said, with an ugly cottage, will get you in on the market, and then you can always sell it and move up if you want. But if it's strictly a, a, an investment, don't do it. And can you look north? Everybody wants to be within a couple hours. If you go four hours north, do you find deals still? Well. I wouldn't consider them a deal because if you ever go to sell, the days on market are very high. Anything over just over three hours from the GTA is sort of like a psychological wall with people. So, um, you know, if you look farther north than that, they might be a little bit cheaper, but they're not as liquid. So if you go to sell them, you know, it could be a long, long time because you've got a very small percentage of the population that wants to do that. There are some I beautiful caution people to go north. There are some beautiful places just no, just south of the North Pole, though I understand that are available <laughs> with great skating, <laughs> with great skating, and, and good you know water lines. Although it's frozen all year, uh, John yeah. Fincham from the uh, Perry Sound Muskoka Realty Limited. Really appreciate the time today. Thanks so much for doing this. Not a problem. Take care. It is, uh, it is a little distressing. If you are someone who would love to get a cottage, look, if you're someone who is younger and trying to get a cottage and a home at the same time in the Hamilton area and then somewhere in the Muskoka or Kawartha area, oh, you are screwed. I'm sorry. <laughs> Unless you win the lottery or have some great medical settlement, you are in a lot of trouble. Got to find one or the other. If you own a house in Hamilton, though, and a cottage in the Kawarthas, oh, please call me and be my friend. Because you are suddenly a king or a queen. You are sitting on gold mines. It is, uh, it is a market, both markets, changing rapidly. We think of one, we don't often think about the other one. Which is why we rent. Because that's all we can afford. And I don't have to look after a cottage all summer then. Which I'm very, very bad at. Let someone else do the hard work. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. If you are of a certain age, guaranteed at one time or another, you watched hilarious House of Frightenstein filmed, shot, produced, put together right here in Hamilton at CHCH Studios. And the guy who really drove this show, because that was Vincent Price's voice, famous horror movie actor. That was Vincent Price's voice. And there were other bit characters who were on there. We've had uh, a super hippie in here in the studio a number of months ago. But the guy who drove it was William Allen Van Avera, who you know better as Billy Van. Well, let me tell you something about Billy Van. Billy Van, who uh, sometimes has been kind of forgotten, I guess. Uh, there's a new museum of Billy Van right here in Hamilton that has been put together by Stacy Case, who's a Hamilton resident who I understand is a, well, we'll, we'll, under, we'll let him tell why he's put together a museum for Billy Van, but he joins me now. Stacy, thanks for doing this today. Oh, it's, a, it's such a pleasure to be on the air. Thanks so much for having me. I think that a strong case could be made that Hilarious House of Frightenstein is the most famous show ever made at CHCH. Would you agree with that, first of all? I would agree that uh, Hilarious House of Frightenstein is the most famous show from CHCH. Uh, with party game coming a close second. And the funny part about this, though, and I said this when, and I'm dropping, I'm forgetting his name right now, but uh, Super Hippie, the guy who played Super Hippie. Mitch Markowitz. Mitch Markowitz, yeah, thank you very much. Great guy. Uh, When he was in here, I said this to him, I'll say it to you. As a kid, I never exactly knew what I was supposed to do with Hilarious House of Frightenstein, (laughs) if it was supposed to be funny or terrifying. 
Well, there were generations of us that all wanted the same thing. I had my own uh, take on it. Um, I really, like, for me, I didn't know... I grew up in Niagara in the Lake. I, I watched uh, uh, Frightenstein in the morning uh, over an antenna. Yeah, at five thirty, probably on Saturday yeah, morning. Exactly. I would get up <laughs> Saturday morning. I'd watch the farm, or I'd watch. Uh, I'd watch Static. I'd be so excited. I'd watch Static, and then the National Anthem, <laughs> and then the Farm Report. I can tell you exactly everything I watched, and um, I would just wait for Frightenstein. And I, I think it allowed me to think that horror was okay. Because when I started watching Frankenstein, I started discovering on Channel 29 and Channel 7 out of Buffalo, I started discovering horror movies in the afternoon. Um, so the whole thing led to me becoming a horror fan. And I'm very grateful for that. Saturdays and Sundays on kids' TV were very different. Saturdays was hilarious House of Frightenstein. You would not, as I say, not really be sure if you were supposed to be scared or laughing. Sundays, you'd get Davy and Goliath, which was a whole different kind of horror. Anyway, yeah. um, it is. it is, though... Regardless of what you take of it, Hilarious House of Frightenstein was one of the strangest shows that's ever probably been put on the air anywhere. I, uh, there's a, and again, I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, it is so special and so unique. And the people that made the show, I've gotten to know so many people that have worked on the show over the last, you know, I've been researching this for like 20 years, 25 years. And uh, they all, they all, you can talk to anyone that worked on the show and they all knew that they were working on something special while they were shooting None of this happens, though, and we're going to get to Billy Van, because really, I mean, there were a lot of pieces that went into this, and, I mean, Igor was memorable, and Vincent Price, and none of this happens without Billy Van. He was the show. That's right, and that's what, uh, you know, when I started doing research, I, I tracked down Billy Van and did an interview with him in 1994, hmm. and he wrote me a thank you letter when the interview got published, and that, that letter is in handwritten, and it's one of my most cherished possessions. Um, I had him as a guest on my radio show in Toronto doing Frankenstein Radio uh, for a segment. So we, basically, we became not close friends, but, we, but we, we became, I would consider us to be friendly and friends. And uh, I started working in film and television from 97 to 2002 with the goal of writing a script that I could work with Billy Van and direct him and write something really great. And when I contacted him to say I was... Uh, you know what I'd been doing and what I, and that I was ready. That was when I found out that he had cancer and he had passed. He passed away within six months. Was there so, one of the characters? Because I think he played he played eight characters on the show. Correct. Uh, he was the gorilla, so that makes ten. That makes ten. Okay, uh, the list I had here was that he played the count. He played Griselda the ghastly gourmet. He played the yep. Wolfman, of course. Yeah. He played uh, the librarian. Yeah. He played Doctor Petvet. Mm-hmm. The Oracle mm-hmm. and the Gorilla. That's right. There was also the Maharishi, the guy that oh, yes. had the uh, flowers dropped on him. Yes, I forgot about that one. He yes, was you're right. The Gorilla. He was the mosquito that, uh, that <laughs> bit the guy in the foot. And then there's <laughs> one. There's one character that you rarely see. Uh, it's a guy in, uh, or it's Billy in um, uh, in uniform, and. Uh, after repeated viewings, it's like I would always really enjoy whenever I saw the mosquito because he would rarely be on the show. And the uniform guy was barely ever on the show, so it was super exciting when you got a glimpse of him. So, yeah, it looks like it looks like he did 12 characters, doesn't it? Well, so which one of those, was there one that was your favorite or that you drew you into this show originally? Yeah, uh, uh, I'm, I'm a Count fan. 
uh, I thought that uh, the count showed uh, Billy at his at his best because because he was able to ad lib with Igor, ad lib with uh, Joe Torbay, who was the puppeteer doing uh, operating the puppets, Gronk, mm-hmm. Grammer, Bammer, Slammer, and Harvey Waldanger. <laughs> so I, I really enjoyed watching. Like, I've, I've always enjoyed watching Billy doing improv, and having talked to him and knowing what I know. Uh, a lot of that stuff. There might have been uh, the the outline of a of a loose script of what they were going to talk about, but then they just uh, winged it. I and wish I wish I had kept or wish I had brought up before we talked here uh, the clip when I had Mitch Markowitz in studio again, who played Super Hippie. He was telling the story. I guess uh, the guy who played Igor. And uh, what was the name of the uh, the little person who was the actor on the Guy show? Guy Big. Guy, Guy Big. Big. And they yeah. apparently were good friends and drove to the show together to filming in a little... Uh, in Igor's VW. In a VW. And the two of them, when they would stop it somewhere along the way, and, and Igor couldn't even get into the car or out of the car, and Guy Big had to jump down out of a seat. Apparently it was something. It's true. It's true. Okay, so what... This show, and again, you are not the only. You're you're certainly taking it to a new level. But I've talked over the years to so many people who have such fond memories of this show, and yet I maybe it's on somewhere. I mean, there's yeah. a million channels, but I can't find it. There, there's so much stuff, old replays of stupid shows that are on TV. How come this is not on anywhere that we can find these days? I know. Um, so the mat, the uh, there is a full set of tapes that a company called Head Spinner in. Uh, Toronto recently acquired the master tapes. For, they've made a partnership with Mitch. Um, the original, the last rights holder, William Alexander, uh, had the rights to uh, the show for 10 years. Those rights reverted back to Mitch when the 10 years ran up. Um, so William had the show on for a little bit in the mid-2000s, and then he worked with Anchor Bay to release a 3D DVD uh, box set. Um, but right now, Headspinner has the rights. And they have uh, issued a press release, so they're talking about possibly doing a reboot. Um, Is that a good idea? In my opinion, I leave it. Leave the show alone. Yeah, yeah. You don't. Yeah. Uh, you don't. You don't redo the Wizard of Oz. You don't redo. You know the the shows that are unredoable. I mean, how do you redo? Especially with modern sensibilities and political correctness and everything else, there's just no way you could do this properly. No, it it would be it wouldn't be what it is. No, what it is is so epic and awesome that why would you change it? And grimy and grungy and rough around the edges and all those things that you don't want it to be cleaned up. I don't think. Like I, I think. really like. Uh, there's so many little set. Like I can watch that show. There's so many little segments that are so genius, and it ties into Billy uh, and his like how he worked in the past when he was starring on Nightcap on the CBC in the '60s. They had no budget either, so they would do things like. Um, tape a hand on a wall and say mountain and when and then the camera would cut to the sign audience well we can't afford a mountain but there's a (laughs) there's a mountain so that that kind of idea that kind of visualizing carried over to frightenstein you know there is no dracola uh cola label on the bottle it's just hand-drawn dracola (laughs) Uh, uh, many, many signs that Igor holds up. Everything's hand-drawn. I love it. I love that it's low-tech like Exactly. That. And, and here's the thing. So so Billy Van, I mean, Hilarious House of Frightenstein is clearly the place where many people would have known him. Party Game, you mentioned, also done in Hamilton here at CHCH, another one that, that really put him in the, the front of people's eyes. But there were a lot of different things he did with CBC before that, everything else. How is Billy Van 
not, when you consider who is and how many people are, how is he not on Canada's Walk of Fame? Well, that is, um, when I put the Billy Van Museum into play and this book into play, uh, an, an end result of what I'm doing is um, to create a juggernaut of enthusiasm um, and basically wake people up and realize that as fans we have power and our voices can be heard and we can unite around somebody that we grew up and that we love so much and we can petition the Canada's Walk of Fame and nominate him and do everything we can. Like, I'm willing to go and disrupt the organization at, 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 at the next... <laughs> like, I'm, I'm quite happy to... Dressed go, as the okay, count. Do it as the bus, count. Yeah, I know. Two busloads of Frankenstein fans show up and start causing a ruckus. It's like, I'm cool with that. But it really does it really does point to the fact that uh, maybe it's because time has gone by, but he is really an underappreciated Canadian. Well, when, when, when CBC Radio covered uh, the museum a few days ago, um, two, over 200,000 people have watched the video of my museum. So there's 200,000 people in Canada that know Billy Van, or they wouldn't have clicked on a link. So the, all the signs are there. <laughs> Like, wake up, everyone. This guy is loved and remembered across Canada. I've received phone calls from, from everywhere across Canada, emails, Facebook messages saying, way to go, way to go to the museum. We're going to be, I'm coming from Japan. Can I come to see the museum? Uh, can I book it at Christmas time? What are your Christmas hours? Um, everybody loves Billy. What, so tell me about the museum. Where is it? What's in it? Okay. Um, the museum is at 1576 King Street East, just east of Ottawa South. Uh, I found the space on Kijiji. I wasn't looking for it. I just happened to see it. And uh, my, my writing partner, Greg, uh, Greg Oliver, and I, we've been working on the book for the last uh, probably... I pitched him on the idea in 2007. It's taken me 11 years to finally have the time to work on the book properly. So that's what we've been doing for the last six months. I was looking for an opportunity, uh, some way. It's hard to advertise a book. It's hard to get publicity for a book, uh, especially when you're just working on it. There's nothing to really talk about. So I was thinking, well, you know what? I have all this stuff, and I have all these mementos, and, I, and the space is so cheap. So I went and looked at the space, and I'm like, my gosh, I think I can do a Billy Van Museum in here. Um, so I contacted Billy Van's daughter, Tracy, and I said, look, I want to start this Billy Van Museum. Do you have any mementos that you can loan the museum for a couple of years? He said, yeah. She said, yeah, no problem. So I went to Toronto and visited. And man, she's family photos, um, clothing of Billy's. Uh, he was the spokesman for Colt 45 doing all uh, print, print ads and television interviews from 1966 to 1978. So I have, uh, I guess, Colt 45 would send him swag as his as the spokesman for their beer. So I have uh, his Colt 45 belt buckle. <laughs> I have uh, letters that he's written. Um, I have albums that I play during the presentation of the Billy Van Four, the Billy Van Singers, uh, the Four Grads, because uh, people don't realize, everybody knows him from Frightenstein, but he had a 40-year career in, in entertainment, beginning as a singer and moving on to um, 
joining the cast and crew of various uh, comedy shows as a second banana. Well, let me jump in here for a second, because I was going to do this at the end, but since you mention it, the Billy Van Singers, people will not know that Billy Van was part of one of the most familiar TV theme songs of all time. Jacob, hit, hit the music here. Billy Van is singing here. That is the Billy Van Singers and the Lori Bauer Singers. That was done in Toronto years and years and years ago. Who knew that Billy Van was doing that too? Isn't that great? That is. It's very cool. I've I've talked to his, uh, when he was on the Sonny and Cher show, I recently interviewed his producer uh, from the Sonny and Cher show, Alan Bly. Alan is uh, an incredible man. He a Canadian that moved to Hollywood. Um, he actually produced Elvis's comeback special in '68 and, wow. won, uh, won, and uh, won an Emmy for it. Um, he moved on into um, um, uh, producing various television shows. And when he needed a uh, second banana for a Sunny and Cher show, his first call was to Billy Van. Uh, they worked together singing jingles starting in the late 50s. So they, they knew each other through singing for a long time. And um, when he moved into, when Billy moved into acting, Alan kept an eye on his career. So as fans, you know, we grew up watching Frankenstein, but as I grew older, I began watching Bizarre. And I began yes, watching other television with Don shows. Biner and Super yeah, Dave and Osborne. Put, and who else was on there? Billy Van. Why? Because Alan Bly, his producer from Sonny and Cher that he's known for 20 years, was the producer of Bizarre and the producer of the Super Dave show. So he'd, he'd help out Billy wherever he could. It is, uh, it is a great... Th- so, okay, the museum, if someone wants to see it, if they are interested in seeing what you've got there, first of all, I assume if anyone has Billy Van's stuff tucked away in their basement, you'd be interested in having it, first of all, yes. or at least borrowing it. Yes. Uh, I have a two-year lease on the museum um, right now, so I have it until May 2020. And, uh, yeah, I'd be, I'm definitely looking for, for, for more... Um, the more the merrier. So any Frankenstein uh, stuff. And if people want to see the museum, I know you're not open 24 hours a day, seven no. days a week. If someone wanted to see or go down there or enjoy it, how do they do that? Well, the best way to do it is to contact me is if you're on Facebook to join or contact the Billy Van Museum and book. Uh, it's a group, it's a page on Facebook and I respond to it like lightning. Um, so drop me a line. So here's, here's how it works. Sundays, four to 6 p.m., Tuesdays, 8 to 10 p.m., Thursdays, 8 to 10 p.m., contact me to book a reservation, uh, up to four people, that's what I can seat, and then uh, it's a half-hour presentation, and you can contact me at billyvanfan at gmail.com. You can join the Facebook group at Billy Van Museum and Book, and billyvan.ca goes live this weekend. So that'll actually be the easiest way. Stacy, he, he, he was not a Hamiltonian. Um, no. Kind of is though honorary as a Hamiltonian, I, I right? I would say a complete honorary Hamiltonian. Yeah, it you is. Know, he, he he loved it. He loved working here. Uh, he was on the party game for eleven years. He he commuted to Hamilton for eleven years. It's, he loved it here. It's a great story. It's a great. Uh, it's a, there's a great background here, and uh, one of the underappreciated folks who's contributed to this city and to the the culture. I mean, again, hilarious House of Frightenstein. If you are of a certain vintage guaranteed you watch that show even if you were completely confused by it you probably watch that show <laughs> uh stacy case really really appreciate you taking some time today to do this appreciate right it. on billyvan.ca thank you so much that is um i'm hoping somehow that one of these days that it's back on the air 
somebody finds a way to get those shows back up. There is enough. There are enough channels, and there's enough filler and visual poop that is being shown on those channels. Surely we can come up with something. Even CHCH. Hello, CHCH. Somehow get the rights and show it again at 2 in the morning even. Because you know what? That's when people will actually watch it now. This is the kind of thing you would see at 2 in the morning. Got to get it back on there somehow. The Bill Kelly Show. Weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML.